I'm Sean Kennedy, and this is Backstage at the Enharmonic. Today's episode of Backstage at the Enharmonic features Jim Riley, drummer and band leader for the multi-platinum group Rascal Flats. Jim is also an avid teacher and is currently an adjunct professor of drum set studies at Belmont University. Throughout today's interview, Jim talks about his early influences, his upbringing, and why he chose the Nashville scene in the mid-90s. Jim also stresses how important it is to set up a drum set correctly, and he discusses the ergonomics of how he sets up his drum set to deliver the music he needs to play. He also mentions some very memorable performances and meaningful experiences that he's had throughout his career. And please forgive my dog at the beginning of the interview. There's a couple squeaks and jingles um, under some of the interview. Uh, He was in my studio when I was recording this and I didn't realize the mic was picking him up. However, my dog's name is Kenny Rogers, so it all seems to make sense. (laughs) Well, I hope you enjoyed this edition of Backstage at the Enharmonic. Thanks, Jim, for uh, coming to Backstage at the Enharmonic. Uh, I'm very excited to talk to you and ask you some questions. And for the listeners that are out there, uh, my money would be that every single person that's going to listen to this has heard you play drums more than once in their life. But in case they don't know who Jim is, could you just give us a quick synopsis of yourself for the listeners that might not be familiar with you? Yeah, so um, from the year 2000 to 2020, uh, uh, I was... uh, drummer, musical director, band leader for the group Rascal Flats. Um, so uh, during that time, obviously had uh, opportunity to, uh, you know, play a bunch of incredible live shows, do some, some album work, uh, do some movie work, do some all sorts of stuff. It's really interesting opportunities. And currently, uh, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get into it, but, you know, Rascal Flats uh, has been broken up since 2020. So currently, I'm actually playing with uh, lead singer Gary Lavox of Rascal Flats, and I'm actually also doing some dates with uh, Jay DeMarcus. Uh, he's got a side project called Generation Radio, so I'm doing some some gigs uh, with him, uh, you know, on the side. So I'm actually playing with two of my uh, my three Rascal Flats uh, bosses, uh, you know, each of in the next month. So awesome. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. So um, a lot of students uh, kind of check out my podcast, uh, high school, middle school, going into college and that sort of thing. Yeah. So uh, maybe you could just go back a bit in the time machine, the Jim Riley time machine. Uh, when you were in middle school and high school or even before, what inspired you to play drums? What was it that attracted you to drums first? Uh, yeah, I can, I can remember it very, very, very clearly. Um, I, I knew that I wanted to be you know, a musician since before I was a musician. Uh, I saw an ad for the band Kiss. I saw an ad on TV for Kiss Alive 2, I think. And I've seen the commercial since then, and it it showed Peter Chris's drum set, and it was kind of rising up in the air, this ever-expanding drum riser, And he was just absolutely surrounded with drums. And it was like the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And I'm like, that is the job that I want. (laughs) Uh, And that was literally 
that was probably like kindergarten, first grade. I, I was like, oh my gosh, I want to do that. So by the time I was in the fourth grade, I, I had already taken some guitar lessons, but I didn't really connect with the instrument that much. Um, I think mostly because I wanted to play it left-handed and no one would play, teach me left-handed. Hmm. So uh, I lost interest in guitar. Fourth grade, I asked my parents to uh, let me play drums at school. They said no. Uh, fifth grade, I said, I asked them if I could play drums. They said no. Finally, sixth grade, they said, well, whatever's wrong with this kid isn't going to be solved by not letting him play drums. So let's give that a shot. And really what happened was probably the opposite of what they, they thought, which was that playing music and playing drums was a galvanizing force in my life. Uh, you know, everything, you know, that was happening that was good was surrounding that. Um, it, it, it really turned my whole existence around. And uh, yeah, so I just started playing drums. You know, I was taking lessons in the sixth grade, uh, reading, learning to read music, uh, played some bells, played some snare drum. I, I, I moved through my first teacher pretty fast. I went to another teacher. Um, that teacher suggested that I take lessons with um, Alan Dawson and with um, Arthur Press with the Boston Symphony. So I took some lessons with those guys uh, in high school and um, ended up going to college. I went to uh, University of North Texas, uh, which was a great experience. So maybe we'll get into a little bit of that. Fantastic. Uh, did So mom and dad said no originally. Did mom and dad play any instruments? They did not. They did okay. not. Uh, completely, very much musical enthusiasts. Loved mm -hmm. music. We always listened to music. Mom was listening to Sinatra. Um, Dad was listening to the Rolling Stones. And my mom was, you know, listening to a little bit of Bee Gees. Dad was listening to Harry Chapin and Stevie Wonder. And he was somewhere between folk and rock and funk. And mom was somewhere between, you know, uh, jazz singers and, uh, you know, like I said, we was, I listened to a lot of those Bee, uh, Bee Gees records and ABBA records and all of that uh, from my mom's side. And uh, you were up near Boston. I, yep. I, yep. Uh, yep. Did you ever get I to was see born that? in Boston? I was born <laughs> in Boston. I was raised in the suburbs. Okay. One of my favorite drummers watching coming up on PBS was Fred Buda. Uh, I don't know if you ever had a chance to see him live yep. or study with him or anything. Or Yep. Met Fred. Um, saw Fred play with the Boston Pops. Mm -hmm. um, he was he was great. Yeah. I mean, there was uh, uh, Bob Galati was up there. Um, he's amazing. Alan Dawson up there. Um, there was a lot of really neat drummers that, that were living in that area. And I got, you know, some exposure uh, to them. And then of course, I mean, I literally, you know, as a kid, I mean, I can honestly say, you know, I went to Vic Firth's house when I was in high school, <laughs> you know, I bought my first tambourine from Neil Grover in his basement, <laughs> you know, incredible. so yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty, pretty incredible. So you're in high school, middle school, uh, university of North Texas and, uh, 
you know, when I think Nashville drummers, you're like right up there at the top now. Um, in those formative years, did you ever think you'd be in Nashville and known as a Nashville studio player? No, okay. no, no. What did you think? Uh, did you think you were going to be in Kiss or was that your goal? Or That is literally exactly what I thought. Okay. And, you know, so what Eric Singer does for a living, right. that's what I thought I would be doing. But okay. the truth is the, the idea of um, – of rock players and rock music playing in stadiums. I had this idea of me playing. I couldn't shake that image of the big stage and being on tour and being behind, you know, a crazy, beautiful drum set. Um, and what happened was the world changed in the time from when I was a kid to the time that I was old enough to be, you know, a professional player, uh, you know, the idea of arena rock had kind of gone away in some respects. And that music had been taken over by some different genres, you know, specifically uh, pop, you know, and then uh, another one starting in the early nineties, there was an incredible rise of country music. So, what happened, I mean, I was a kid growing up in Massachusetts. I had very little exposure to country music. The only exposure I really had was Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton, you know. And really, to be honest, they were those were pop stars. Mm -hmm. They were absolutely pop stars. Uh, and this, so they were country and, you know, like country crossover artists. Um, so I, I didn't have any country music pedigree at all. Uh, I had no interest in in country music. I mean, I played a lot more rock and funk and, you know, metal and um, jazz. And, you know, so I didn't really have any experience with that. When I went to Texas, I started to get some exposure to country music. And um, when it got to be around the early 90s, something really interesting happened in music and that there was the rise of you know, if I was to say 92, 93, what is that the rise of music? What was the thing that changed everything in music at that time? No, you're, the, ask, you're asking me? Yeah. What was the biggest thing in music, 92, 93? What killed, what killed uh, Poison's career? What killed Winger's career, Motley Crue's career for a while? It was grunge. All right. It was Nirvana. Right. It was Soundgarden. Mm -hmm. It was... Uh, Rage Against the Machine, all of that stuff was the stadium rock killers. Mm. You know, it was the anti-stadium rock. So that music killed everything. It became the biggest thing in music. And I, I'm not sure that it was as universally loved as it was by, like, I loved it. The music industry loved it. But I felt like there was a pushback from, like, the average music listener. Some people really didn't relate to it. So there was an alternative to the alternative. And that is where the, one of the biggest acts of the early 90s found his rise. And that was Garth Brooks. Mm -hmm. Garth Brooks became an incredibly, I mean, he came, like, the biggest thing in music in the, in the early 90s. Uh, he brought along with him Reba McIntyre and Alan Jackson and Brooks and Dunn. And then a little bit later, Toby Keith and then Shania Twain came through. So, I mean, there was this just incredible wave of country music. And so I started to hear 
the musicianship coming out of Seattle, I started hearing the musicianship coming out of Nashville. And I said, you know what? I feel like more like I would fit in in Nashville. I, I was just, I was so impressed by the musicianship I was hearing on these country records. Uh, guitar solos that were just blowing my mind, fiddle solos, incredibly solid drumming, great production. And I went, you know, that's just the kind of, that's the level of musicianship I want to be around. And that was at the first time I realized that I had more of a love affair with music and the idea of being a professional musician than I did any particular genre. Mm -hmm. Some people, they want to be a jazz musician or they want to be a funk musician or they want to be a blues musician or they want to be a country musician or a rap musician. I always wanted to just be a working musician. So for me, I ended up playing literally all of those things coming up. But I saw an angle coming to Nashville where I was like, you know what? I think someone like me could go there. And the first angle that I saw was, listen, I want to get on the road and I want to play some shows. There's a lot of these session musicians that are playing that are not going on the road with artists. They're looking for a drummer to go out on the road. I could be that guy. So I, I came to Nashville with that business model. And literally 11 months later, I was on the road with, you know, kind of a big name artist. And I was uh, off to the races. Incredible. And your undergrad was in music education, correct? Yep. Now, were mom and dad uh, supportive of that? And then after you didn't decide to teach, was there any uh, blowback from your family about going on tour? Yeah, all, yeah. all of those things, all okay. of those things. So my, my parents were very supportive of the music ed degree. Um, I got the music ed degree. I really quite accidentally landed a job at a great um, – uh, music uh, at a great school district uh, outside of Dallas. And it ended up being a very coveted job. But I, I, I just, I just sort of right place, right time, walked in, got, went into the interview, got the job that some other people didn't get. And so for one year, I was like the percussion specialist for the Capel independent school district, which is right next to Irving and Dallas. Mm -hmm. And, um, so it was a, a great job. My parents were just over the moon. Like, you know, my mom's like, my son's a teacher. You know, I mean, she just thought it was the greatest. And I really enjoyed it because I love teaching. I have an incredible passion for teaching. It's something that, you know, to this day, I mean, I do so much of. Um, but I had this other passion, which was probably primary, which was I wanted to be a professional musician on the highest level. So I had to make the tough decision of leaving a job that I thought was really great. Uh, my mom was not brokenhearted about it. She was definitely not incredibly happy about it. But I said, you know what? I got to I gotta follow this dream. Uh, that led me to bouncing around for a couple years. And then I, I moved to Nashville in 1997. And I mean, you know, started off incredibly humbly, uh, lived at a drum shop. When the drum shop closed, I was literally living in my truck. And then uh, I ended up living on Rich Redmond's couch, who had only been in Nashville for about 
two weeks longer than I had, but he had an apartment. Uh, we lived together for about six months. Uh, and, and then, uh, you know, I ended up uh, about a year into it, I, I ended up landing a pretty, pretty big gig. And, and that afforded me to, you know, to, to move out and uh, rent a room with a with a friend uh, where I had my own where I had my own space, which was which was really great. So I guess um, you probably already answered it a little bit, um, but you probably had a lot of doubt and some apprehension as you were getting into this professional thing after you left teaching. Um, so I'll answer that part in a small piece. Okay. I, I, I didn't have a lot of doubt. Okay. I didn't have a lot of doubt. Um, maybe I had misplaced confidence <laughs> but uh i didn't I, I felt like this was what i was going to do and it was just what i was going to do okay so then the next point is the next part of that question i guess is was there a particular moment where you said yes this is going to work like did something specific I, happen yeah i felt really early on like in the process i mean i i, I swear when i was homeless but I was playing a couple of days, dates a week. I went, this is going to work. This is going to work. I just need to, you know, I need to figure a couple of things out. Um, you know, living in my truck is not the way to go here. Uh, I got to figure something out. But I felt pretty early on, even the first summer, I got here in March of 2000. By June, July, I was playing with some artists uh, on the road. Now, the, the business was a little different back then. Country music was really incredibly hot. Labels were very aggressive. They were throwing tons and tons of artists out there, just seeing what would stick. So what would happen was an artist would be thrown out there. They would get on the road. Things, things would not work out for them. All the musicians would bail out and go to the next thing. <laughs> and there were three different artists I played with that first summer where I was literally mopping up at the end of somebody's short career. But I was like, listen, I'm getting called. I'm meeting people that are doing this. I remember being in a club. I'm like, there's Tim McGraw's drummer. I just met him. I just played a show with Faith Hill's drummer. I'm meeting people. Um, I feel like, I feel like, you know, things are, are, are going to happen. And then 11 months into it, I'm playing a $40 gig. That one might have been a $30 gig. Two, it was 6 to 10 uh, at Legends Corner on Broadway. The bass player was really great. Um, he, he calls me up. I don't have a phone yet, but I've got a, uh, a, beep, a pager. <laughs> and uh, he leaves me a voicemail and says, hey, I think I might have got something for you. So I'm thinking, you know, he's got another gig on Broadway, you know. 10 to two somewhere. And he goes, um, I think he says, listen, I just got the gig with, with Mark Chestnut. And I think I may have gotten you that gig. And I went, Oh my gosh, what do I got to do? Who do I got to call? What do I got to, he's like, you don't have to do anything. He says, just let me know where you're going to be playing sometime in the next week. A couple of the guys in the band just want to come hear you play. So they came out and heard me play. And um, they talked amongst themselves. There's only three of them. And they said, yeah, this, this guy's great. Um, and they gave me, I think it was a tape. I don't think it was a CD. I think it was a tape. 
Um, and they gave me a set list and they said, yeah, we, we got rehearsal and, you know, three weeks and then we're, we're, we're playing a, uh, we're playing a TV show. <laughs> so my first gig with those guys was, uh, was up in New York. It was the very first season of, uh, the view. Wow. And so that was my first gig with Mark was on live TV. <laughs> Incredible. For so, network, yeah. So your drumming chops, of course, were ready to go. Um, the stuff they don't really talk about in school, maybe, or a lot of young players might not think of. Um, your business acumen, um, you know, getting up every morning. How did you, what other things got you the gig besides just having good chops and listening? Yeah, yeah. So um, my, my hands were together. My styles were together. Um, I think something that's really important is um understanding that every different genre of music requires uh your attention because none of them are as easy as you think they are one of the biggest mistakes that people make and i'll, I'll call out a certain group here i just i'll do it the jazz players seem to think that playing country and pop is easier than playing jazz and it's not it's a completely different discipline that mm -hmm. requires a completely different set of skills. Um, it, there is literally no place to hide in pop music. Um, so uh, your approach has to be uh, darn near perfect. Whereas with jazz, there's room to kind of, you know, maneuver around and make things perfect after the fact you know, I did something and then I'm going to do it again. And that made the first time pretty awesome. <laughs> right. You know, you know, pop music doesn't allow for that. It's very angular. It's very cut and dry. Um, and there's just no place to hide. I think of it like um, I was giving a clinic for uh, the, the U.S. Army music program. And I asked a soldier to walk up to a whiteboard and I said, I want you to draw me as great of a circle as you can. So with his free hand, he draws a circle. I said, listen, I think we can all agree that that's a circle. But upon further examination, it's a little flat over here, comes together kind of funny. You know, it's not close to perfect. In other words, it's a, it sounds like it's a simple task, but it's deceivingly difficult to do well. Um, that's the way pop music is. And once you realize that, then you can go, okay, um, there's, a, there's a method here. There's something that I need to study. You start to study the greats. The first thing you have to do is respect a genre. If you'll respect it, then you'll study it. If you'll study it, then you can figure out the nuances that everybody else is missing, and then you can become special at it. Awesome. So who did you study to get acclimated or to become an expert at this genre? Everybody, everybody. I mean, uh, you know, from drummers like Larry London, who were dominating, you know, the uh, the 70s and 80s in Nashville, to my friend Eddie Bears, to Lonnie Wilson, to Chris McHugh, to the people that I'm, Evan Hutchings, whose birthday's tomorrow, I just happen to see, who's a young player. I mean, I listen to everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, Jerry Rowe, who's uh, the son of Dave, uh, Dave Rowe, who's a great bass player friend of mine. Uh, plays on a bunch of big records. My friend Rich Redman. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, my friend Seth Roush, who's played with everyone from uh, 
little big town to uh, to Keith Urban to you know I mean he's he's done a he's now playing with uh, Carrie Underwood. Hmm. Uh, but you know I mean I, I, I listen to all of them and, and you know I find certain commonalities there and I go you know what are the things that make these people great. Um, and mostly it's just their clarity of purpose. They understand what their role as a drummer is. Many of those drummers that I just listed, not all of them, but there several of them, they don't have crazy world-class chops. They just have a really incredible clarity of purpose. They know what to do. They get a great quality of sound, um, and they know what to play when. They have a really great feel for that. That's the key, the essence of the artistry of being in country music and pop music, which I think are very linked, are very close. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you do every day or try to do every day to keep your chops in line and all that type of stuff? Yeah, so uh, I got a really great piece of um, a really great piece of advice at a clinic. I heard it more than one time. And so I'll pass it along to all the listeners because it's absolutely true. And that is when you're young, when you're in middle school, when you're in high school, when you're in college, you know, it's very likely you don't have a, uh, a spouse. You don't, maybe don't even have a job. Your, your job is to get great at what you want to try to do. So my advice is practice while you have time, because when you're a professional, you're going to have a lot less time to practice. Um, so my, I teach constantly. Um, I'm teaching at Belmont University. I'm finishing up my third year there as a professor. Um, I teach here two days a week right now. I've done 27 drum camps here uh, where I have people come in from all over North America and study with me in a small group session uh, here in my studio. Um, I teach online. Uh, I do drum. I still do drum clinics uh, when those things are coming up. I've got a couple of those coming up. Uh, so when I'm breaking things down for my students is when is where I am constantly reevaluating what is important to me as a player. Um, one of the best things about teaching at the college level is it's forced me to really break down concepts and defend my thoughts as to, well, why? Not just what do you do, but why do you do it? Um, and and it, it's been really amazing. And in that process, I'm constantly reevaluating and reassessing what is truly important to me as a professional musician. And I can take those assessments and evaluations and bring them into my um, my my everyday career you know when i'm when i'm recording down here which i do a lot i literally recorded a, a song for a client uh a little while ago i'm actually looking to see if i've heard back from them yet i'll let you know if i have uh not yet um so yeah i'm waiting to hear back from that client but um every time i'm playing a song I'm hearing myself play. I'm, a, I'm able to evaluate what I do 
one of the things that my teachers always said, even in a different age where people were recording with the, the two buttons on the tape machine, um, they would say, record yourself playing. Well, as a career, part of my career right now is, is recording here in my studio, as well as in, you know, other people's studio and session, you know, studios downtown. But most of what I do is here. And there's a lot of people that's the case. You know, um, there's a lot of players that are playing on big, big records and they're doing it. They're doing them at their house now because mm -hmm. they can do it. They've got a controlled environment. They've got every drum. It's all mic'd up. It's all ready to go. They don't have to rent a studio because it's already the drummer's studio. So every time I'm playing a song, um, I'm able to listen back and evaluate what I'm hearing and ask myself a very simple question. Would I buy that performance? Do I buy it? Would I literally pay money for that performance? And if I listen to it, I go, yeah. I mean, that sounds like something I would listen to. That sounded like something I would pay money to hear. Um, then, then I think that it's it's good. And I think that one of the best things that I've gotten good at is understanding that the more I know about the music I'm playing, the better I'm able to serve that music. So, you know, just understanding song form, understanding how songs are built, the more I can clearly understand that, the better I can serve them. And so that's something that I really try to impress upon my students at every level. So I've talked to Liberty DeVito a lot, and I know that one of the things he does, he would say, I want the lyrics first, because he would get into the song lyrically and build some mm -hmm. of his parts around that. Have you ever done that? Or do you do that actively with so, lyrics? So I, I think this is a really great conversation. First of all, full disclosure, um, I when I was a kid, I don't know why I didn't know what headphones were, but I didn't have a set of headphones. I had my left speaker and right speaker <laughs> sitting like this on whatever like furniture I had. And um, I had a record player in my room and I was listening to 52nd Street and Glass mm -hmm. Houses, those two records in particular. Um, and playing those records along with other records like Queen, News of the World, and Bohemian Rhapsody and different mm -hmm. things like that. But uh, And then later Rush Records and, and stuff like that. But earliest on, I was listening to Liberty DeVito. Mm -hmm. And so, I, I mean, knowing Lib as you do and I do now, to me, I'm just like, this is amazing. Like, talk about starstruck. I mean, I was <laughs> right. playing to this guy in my room when I was 13 years old. Me too. <laughs> um, so having said that, I will I will mention another really great influential player of our day in a different way, Mr. Todd Zuckerman. Mm -hmm. And I heard a class that he was doing online I was listening to, and he said the exact same thing that Lib said, which is I want to hear the story, I want to be part of that. And I go, you know, that's a really understandable perspective. And this was his argument against it. Uh, and I agree with Todd wholeheartedly about this. He says, if you're not listening to the lyrics, he says, you're not the storyteller. You're just like the cinematographer or the set designer. And I went, I don't listen to the lyrics. And I agree with you a thousand percent. I am the set designer. I am the cinematographer. I don't care whether he got the girl or he didn't <laughs> or how he got the girl or how she you know, ended up leaving him at the altar. 
that doesn't affect what I'm doing. I'm the one that's creating the Ozark blue, you know, look, you know, I'm creating the world that this stuff is built on. Okay. So I actually do not listen to the lyrics Hmm. and I don't remember lyrics and I'm not overly concerned with lyrics. I'm concerned with what, what structurally is happening in that song whether I'm I'm on the leading edge of that structure or I have to build my parts around an existing structure. I look at music like the matrix, like when he was saying, you know, I don't even see the numbers falling anymore. I just see, you know, blonde, brunette, redhead walking on the streets of New York City. So he'd look past the numbers and could actually see the world that was in the matrix. When I see like a Nashville number system chart, which is what I use most of the time, I see and hear in my head an entire song and I'm ready to play that song and that becomes the world that this that this um song can be built on you know whether the love story is happening on Mars or whether it's happening in a desert or whether it's happening on a boat in the ocean I'm creating the boat in the ocean they're telling the story. So hmm. it's my job to create a platform for that for that to that story to be told, not to tell the story. I work for I work for the storyteller. I service the storyteller and I serve the song. I'm not I don't misinterpret that I'm the one telling the story. So a different perspective. Right, right. Cool. <laughs> and I think they're both great. And right. like I love that there's a lot of things that I disagree with about people that I really respect in the business Mm -hmm. Uh, because it just shows you that there's more than one way. I mean, I am as um, ultra practical as they come in terms of what I want my students to practice, what I would choose to spend less time on. I'm not concerned with, working on my open-handed playing, you know, I'm not, you know, I set up my drum set in a certain way to be able to serve the song, not to be able to be a drum set virtuoso. If I was doing that job, I might set up my drums differently, but I set my drums up in a way that, um, that helps me serve the song. You notice as I'm looking at you, for those who can see us, I'm looking straight forward. You notice what's not looking straight forward? My bass drum. My bass drum's over here. Hmm. Either mm-hmm. the bass drum's facing forward or you're facing forward. Both of those things can't be true. So I set my drum set up thrown first, snare second, bass drum third, hi-hat fourth, ride cymbal fifth, then the toms, then the cymbals, and anything else. Uh, and that way, the things that I need to keep time on, the snare, the bass drum, the hi-hat, the ride, are all in what I would call priority positions. You know, And so I would encourage anybody to look at their drum set and go, is my drum set helping me co- accomplish my musical goals? And if it's not, I would do what I did, which is I was 30 years old when I tore my drum set down and rebuilt it. Hmm. 
Yeah, I'm with you on that. I, all my young students, I have them sit down in a stool away from the set. And I'm like, look where your feet are. <laughs> look where they're sitting naturally. Look where your arms are, you know, because too many of them contort their bodies to this preconceived notion of what the drum set should exactly. look like. Exactly. And I yeah. and I feel like, you know, I don't know if I'll get there, but like I, I'll just say it out loud. And uh, I'll, I'll, I've said it to them before. I wish Ludwig would start making their beginner five pieces with two toms on a stand, virgin bass drum, which has no mount, and then four tom, you know, separate. Mm -hmm. So that, because this ergonomic setup that I'm doing um, has gained a lot of traction. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's a better starting place than the traditional five piece, which I think has a lot of problems inherently with it because the first one is that it doesn't allow for a good placement of the ride symbol it's either going to be mm -hmm. way up high above the tom or way over to the right by the four tom neither of which are priority comfortable positions to play the ride so i i think that some of those things have to be thought about differently and this this setup is one thing that i've tried to you know promote and bring out to the world and i've had a little effect, I think, you know, there where people are, are seeing that and it's starting to gain some steam. No, it's great. I'm with you on that. Yep. It should. Cause since we can make the drum set comfortable, why not make it more comfortable? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so talking about students, um, are you part of the audition process, evaluating kids coming in and all that stuff? I am not. So I'm an adjunct professor. Uh, that may change next year. I may end up going to a lecture position, which basically just means I may be teaching more classes. I started teaching some classes this last year. Aside from just teaching drum set, I actually taught a, a really super fun class that I'll be teaching again this fall called Career Essentials, where I'm able to talk about the idea of helping these students monetize their abilities so that they can create um, a stable working environment for themselves so that they're not the starving musician you mm -hmm. know and, and and really it's just being able to try to learn how to assign value to our skills and um something that was interesting that happened i know you're very tired of pandemic talk so i won't get do too much pandemic talk because i'm sure some of your your uh your talks went back to that point and you're just like i've had enough of that but uh, one of the uh, the things that happened during the pandemic is that it, very simply put, long story short, Rascal Flats went away. So I went from having this incredibly stable 20-year paycheck, exactly 20 years to the month, by the way. I was, you know, I was, you know, the last gig I played with Rascal Flats was March 2020. The first gig I played was March 20, 2000. Wow. So uh, I went from having this incredibly stable thing to it's gone. And, you know, it's still not back to the way that it was. So I had to go, okay, all this other stuff that I do, how can I make that a stable career, you know, right now in this really weird, uncertain time? Okay, what, what can I do? I play recording sessions. I have this, this studio rig. I was all ready to do it. It wasn't like I picked it up for the pandemic. I already had it. So I have the studio thing. I can play sessions for people. 
I can continue to teach lessons even if they're online. Now, I'll tell everybody this because I would want them to know this anyways. If someone wanted to take a lesson with me, and, I, and if anyone out there wants to take a lesson with me, please feel free to contact me on Instagram, Jim Riley Music. Just go to my private messages and say, hey, love to take a lesson with you. Fantastic. Um, it's $100 if you want to take a, a lesson. Uh, I tell you that both as a, as a person who would be charging you, but also I'm telling you what I'm, what I'm making. When I do a recording session, you might be surprised to know that I also sell you know, my recording uh, uh, talents for basically 100 to $125 for a song. You go, wow, that's super low. Well, yeah, if I wanted to charge 500, I could get it, but I'd get less clients. Mm. So um, that gives me the right amount of clients where I'm doing the right amount of work that I want to do so that it's keeping me sharp. I've done probably easily with no exaggeration, well over 700 songs down here in the last six years. Wow. Well over. Um, so each one of those times is experience. So when, when I get to play on something that people are actually going to hear, I do this every day. You know what I'm saying? It's not like I'm going, oh, gosh, I hope I do well. Right. I do well every day. This is what I do. Um, so back to the financials. So this was the, this was the model I gave myself. I said, if I do three things a day, six days a week, 48 weeks a year, pulling out my calculator. So that was 300 times six times 48. That's $86,400 a year. So I was like, all right, that's my new base salary. So if I do three things a day, six days a week, 48 weeks a year, that's, by the way, that's take an entire month off. That's Christmas and Thanksgiving and a vacation and all that other kind of stuff. Um, so the, the flip side of that is if I wake up one day and I do nothing, and then I wake up the next day and I also do nothing. Well, that's a problem, right? I'm not going to make as much money as I said I was going to. That didn't even take into account that I picked up the Belmont gig, which gave me some money there. Uh, and there were some other things that were coming up. But so I was like, if I work more, I'll make more. If I work less, I'll make less. But at least I'm giving myself some sort of expectation. And it also gave me a place to, to finish I go, you know what? I've done four things today. I think that's enough. I taught two lessons this morning. I did two, two things. My kids are home. Let me go hang out with my kids. You know, mm -hmm. I've done enough today. Or, you know, I did one song today, but I did, you know, seven lessons on Tuesday. I can afford to only do one thing on Thursday. Okay. You know what I'm saying? So right, I right. was averaging things out. And, you know, and so that was how I was able to add stability even in in an area where i'm going listen the truth is i don't know where my next hundred dollars is coming from but i'm going to keep adding them up and so basically in the during the pandemic i really wasn't making any less money than i was making when i was playing with rascal flats i was just working harder and working differently wow it's a good philosophy i like that yeah Very cool
And so I do a lot of things. I, I record, I teach, I write and publish, I produce, um, you know, with all of that stuff, sometimes I'm doing a lot more live playing. Some, like right now, I do a lot less live playing, but I'm doing a lot more teaching. I'm doing a lot more producing, you know. So I'm producing a couple things right now I'm super excited about. Um, and so it, it's not like I'm going, I'm one of these people, and God love them if that's what they want to do. That I teach 60 students a week, and that's what I do. Well, that's not what I do. I teach more like 10 or 15 students a week. But then I'm doing, you know, I'm recording six songs and I'm teaching, well, not counting the students I teach at Belmont, which I'm teaching almost 20. And then, uh, you know, playing next, this month and next month, I have a lot of gigs with Gary LaVox. So I can add that into the mix. You know, I'm always doing a lot of different things. So as a result, I'm never getting burnt out on any of it. Yep. I love it all. I love the teaching I'm doing. I love the recording I'm doing. I love the producing I'm doing. I love the live shows. I'm really looking forward to the, all the live shows I'm going to be playing with Gary coming up. And then the one I have coming up with Generation Radio, which I'm subbing for the great Steve Ferrone, actually. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, so this kind of dovetails onto something you said. I've asked some people this. Uh, it's a strange question. But if there's one musician that you have not played with that you wish you could play with either living or not with us anymore is there a musician or two you're like gosh i wish i could play with that one person you're gonna laugh i bet i won't you're gonna laugh <laughs> because it's it's someone that uh it's someone that our friend daniel glass has played with and that is if i could do a gig right now that i wasn't doing i had nothing to do with right now i'd love to play that brian setzer gig oh yeah i would love that gig and you know when i saw daniel he was like oh yeah you're gonna get fired i'm like Listen, no gigs last forever, Daniel. Something's <laughs> going to happen. I didn't get fired from Rascal Flats, but that doesn't mean it's happening anymore. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it's gigs end. And they're going to end because, you know, either you're the people the, you're working for quit or die, or they get bored of you and fire you, or you screw up and get yourself fired. You know, there's a million reasons that gigs end. And you can't take any of them too personal, you know? So I'll be like, Daniel, you've done a gig I would love to do, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, just because I, I love that music. I love that kind of rocking swing rockabilly kind of thing. You know, I mean, it's right up my alley. I'm like a loud big band drummer and I'd love to do that gig. A couple of years ago, I was over uh, Bernie's house, Bernie Dressel's house, and he had some of his awards from those guys. I was, I was like salivating. I'm like, man, to play that music, and, you know, Bernie. Yeah, Bernie's on those records. Yeah, you know, killing, and he, he just crushing it. You know, you can kind of hear the calfskin heads on some of those tunes, yeah. and um, oh man, you know, I've never met Bernie, but I'm a huge fan of what he does because I know that he's not just a big band drummer. I mean, he's one of the busiest movie session drummers and inventive drummers in uh, in L.A. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, I wish him uh, all the best uh, just, to, you know, as a, as a fan watching. Oh, yeah. Endless creativity. And what a guy. <laughs> uh, let's see. I got two more quick ones for you. Uh, how about one of your most unforgettable performances? Is there one or two that you're like, wow? 
Um, one of them was something that I willed to happen for a long time, which was, um, you know, growing up being a certain age, I'm being in my early fifties, you know, I was in high school watching like the Sunday bloody Sunday video, you know, you two playing at red rocks. I'm just like, Oh my gosh, I would love to play red rocks. And, you know, Rascal Flats became this incredibly, you know, global phenomenon group. And we were playing sold out shows at Staples Center and four show, sold out shows at Madison Garden four years in a row. Madison Square Garden uh, played Wrigley Field, which was incredible. First country act to play Wrigley Field. Um, it was amazing. But one of the venues that I really wanted to play was Red Rocks. Um, contractually being a live nation artist and they weren't going to play red rocks because it wasn't a live nation venue. They were going to play fiddlers green in Denver. And we did many times at some point. I just went, guys, are you going to play your whole career and never play red rocks? Because that just seems really silly to me, you know, and I just kind of kept on them for a couple of years. And finally, you know, they said, yeah, we're going to play Red Rocks this year. And I knew as soon as they said we're going to play Red Rocks, I knew they were going to want to film a special. And um, so we filmed a special at Red Rocks. And um, as soon as we got done with the, the special at Red Rocks, I called Rascal Flatts' manager. I said, who's mixing this? They said, I don't know. I said, I want my, my good friend Sean Neff to mix this. He has juice. He, he Mentioning his name was mentioning someone that was definitely someone that they would consider. So mm -hmm. they went, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. You know, the advantage of that for me was that was really in some silent partner way, kind of making me like the musical executive producer because <laughs> now the whole thing's running through me. Right. Um, and so I'm working with Sean and I'm approving mixes and that I, I, I kind of can't wait for the, the, the moment where everyone gets to see that special that was on um, some special, you know, network. I don't remember which one it was that does a lot of concerts and stuff. But um, I'd love to see that out streaming more. I'd love to see mm -hmm. that out on Netflix or something like that, where more people had uh, uh, access to it, because that was truly one of my favorite evenings of music. My parents flew up oh. to see that show. Um, it was uh, it was a really great sold out show 10,000 people at uh Red Rocks it was pretty pretty unforgettable one, one one of one of my favorite standout shows incredible and i've seen so many performances and uh shows on film at that venue and it's just you know you can't get any better than that <laughs> yeah it's for those of you who haven't been there it's startlingly um uh what's the word I'm looking for deep. vertical okay steep is the word steep is the word I'm looking for um and so the people even though there's 10,000 people they are right on top of you in a way that they are not at, mm. a, at some other out, outdoor amphitheater very steep they're very close to you and you've just got this amazing you know red rock you know walls uh you know as tall as skyscrapers on either side of you and then behind you for the people that are up in the top rows, they're literally looking at Denver. Amazing.
It's super awesome. <laughs> I'll have to go live sometime. I've only seen it on film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really great. Pick one of your favorite bands and go see them there. It's a really great place, uh, you know, uh, to go see a show for sure. All right. And I got two more for you. This, I don't know if this is going to be the same answer or not, but I can edit it if it is. Um, one of your proudest moments in the music business. Do you have something that you're like, man, I'm really proud of that thing I was part of? I mean, you know, just little milestones, you know, I mean, I, I can remember, you know, growing up and watching The Tonight Show and watching, you know, the, the late night with David Letterman. And, you know, some of those moments were pretty crazy. I was like, this is the show I've been watching my whole life. <laughs> um, and, you know, now I'm backstage and I'm hearing, you know, Jay Leno say, Ladies and gentlemen, Rascal <laughs> Flats, you know, or you know, playing Letterman and having Letterman come and go, come out. And I remember he said, "What's going on up here, guys? What's going on?" And then he walks up to me and he did the classic. Are those those nice drums? Are those your drums? <laughs> Have you ever seen the YouTube clip of him doing that? Yeah, he does it to like everybody, right? <laughs> everybody, and and I'm one of those drummers. He did it. <laughs> and uh, another thing that was really interesting was. I, uh, I I was a guest drummer on Late Night with Seth Meyers. Mm. So I did a week on Late Night with Seth Meyers. Um, and Late Night, you know, I mean, that was David Letterman's first show. You know, Late Night with David Letterman. Mm -hmm. So it's the same show um, back when he worked for NBC at 30 Rock. So, um, yeah, to get to do that show for a week and to uh, – you know, to, to do some of those shows, you know, uh, my first, you know, platinum record playing on my first number one hit, you know, I mean, just different things like that. Um, you know, they're all just, you know, they're, they're milestones, but the thing to remember to keep in perspective, you know, um, you know, being, having my face on the cover of modern drummer, mm. you know, being in this really elite group of people who that's happened to, um, you know, in Nashville, there's only been about three or four of us that have mm. had our own cover Nashville, um, drummers. It, it, it's pretty insane. Um, I was talking about this with Eddie Bayers, you know, I mean, we're one of about four or five people that have been on the cover of modern drummer. I, I those are things you can never plan on. So they're never things that I was like, Oh, that's a life goal. Cause you, you know, you can't plan on that. And now for these kids growing up, being on the cover of a magazine, isn't quote a thing. Right. right. What's they a magazine? <laughs> exactly. They have different things. Right. So not only can you not go, oh, that's a life goal, because when by the time you get there, that literally doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. You know, being a rock star didn't exist by the time 2000 rolled around. Mm -hmm. So playing in country music was like the next evolution of of rock star living. You know, we were the ones playing the stadiums that the rock stars were playing in the 80s. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so the, the, the point I'll leave you with is, is that I've never defined my success by any of those things. I've always defined my success by the idea that I get to play music for a living, which is something that I deeply love and enjoy doing. I can support my family doing it. And I say anyone who can play music and support their family or support their lifestyle doing that, they're just as successful as me or anyone else that they've heard of that is some sort of name person with a name thing. That stuff is all really fleeting. 
you know, uh, for me, it's all about the idea of just being able to do what I love for a living, which is something that I've been able to do now for a very long time. So if I meet someone who's teaching students and playing local gigs and they support themselves and their family playing music, I'm like, they're every bit as successful as me. And we can sit and talk about, you know, our careers as colleagues. And I'm not going to like try to big dog them. That's not what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to talk about the commonalities that we have, you know, the struggles of just, you know, being a musician and the, the rewarding thing of being an educator, you know, I mean, those are all things that we can, um, that we can relate to. And, and, and so I love being able to speak to my fellow professional drummers and professional musicians. It's, and that's why I'm, that's why I'm here to, with you today. Well, I couldn't have written a better ending than that. That was beautiful. <laughs> so sounds um, good. I appreciate it, Jim. Thank you so much. Yep. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Yep. Bye. For more great in-depth behind-the-scenes interviews like this, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcast, or wherever you tune in for thought-provoking content. And one last thing. If you like what you heard today, please leave a rating or comment under this podcast. I'm Sean J. Kennedy, and this has been another edition of Backstage at the Enharmonic. Thanks for listening.